We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon yeah, of terror me? against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dig- dig- dignity of man. Immigration. I got to start with a story that just came in today. The former director of one of the nation's most prominent anti immigrant groups seems an unlikely choice to provide assistance to those who run into difficulties with the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Uh, and, but that is the choice that Donald Trump has made for Department of Homeland Security. Uh, it tapped Julie Kirshner, formerly of the Foundation for American Immigration Reform, to serve as the agency's ombudsman. FAIR is best known for the audaciously xenophobic comments of its senior executives, including founder John Taunton, an open proponent of eugenics, who once declared that the future of the United States hinged on it, retaining a European-American majority. Yeah. Does that sound un-American or what? Kirshner has not made those sort of remarks. She's fond of referring to undocumented immigrants as, quote, illegal aliens, a phrase I will never use. And she spent 10 years at FAIR while organizing, uh, while the organization was involved in high-profile battles to end birthright citizenship as enshrined in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution and to require police officers to uh, to detain suspected undocumented immigrants. So that is somebody who is uh, guarding the hen house, as it were. Among the uh, too many to count sickening abominations emanating from the Trump White House is the new and unprecedented crackdown on immigrants, people who come here looking to escape violence and repressive governments and make a better life for them and their families. Trump has focused his wrath on immigrants, many of those who, of course, Uh, rapists who have been increasingly flooding the U.S., causing crime waves and depleting social service budgets. There have been Gestapo-like roundups and increased deportations. The mainstream media has painted a picture that something new, terrifying, and distinctly Trumpian, something we've simply never seen before, is underway, including mass sweeps to deport individuals who would have been protected under previous administrations. No doubt since the day the orange one descended that escalator, undocumented immigrants have been a constant focus of the candidate. They are frightening others from whom we real Americans must protect ourselves. Well, our guest today, Avi Chomsky, writes in a new article, quote, the temperature has soared on the deportation debate. So if you think we're in a completely unprecedented moment when it comes to immigration and immigrants, you're in good company. But, and this is the important part, as she explains, it ain't necessarily so. 
This policy of cracking down on immigrants may be louder under Trump than Obama or Clinton, but the truth is rhetoric is one thing, but these anti-immigrant policies are hardly unprecedented. The uncomfortable truth is that two Democratic presidents, Obama and Clinton, laid the groundwork for Trump's anti-immigrant policies. Who knew? Well, that's what we're here for. To help us look behind the bluster, our guest on Keeping Democracy Today is Avi Chomsky. Avi, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, well, she is Professor of History and Coordinator of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean Studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts. Her books include Undocumented, How Immigrants Became Illegal, A History of the Cuban Revolution, Linked Labor Histories, New England, Colombia, and the Making of a Global Working Class, They Take Our Jobs, and 20 Other Myths About Immigration, and West Indian Workers, and the United Fruit Company in Costa Rica, Boy, that would be interesting from 1870 to 1940. She has also co-edited several anthologies. She's been active in Latin America solidarity and immigrants' rights movements for several decades. Again, Avi, thanks so much for being with us. Let me start by asking, when it comes to Trump's claims that illegal immigrants are flooding into the U.S., causing masses of increases in crime, and that the undocumented are overburdening uh, our own uh, already fragile social welfare programs. How true is that? What is the reality? Okay, so um, there's actually three parts to what you just said, and um, I'm not attributing it to you, obviously. You were uh, paraphrasing our president. Um, and each of them is completely false. Uh, you said that um, there's a flood of undocumented immigrants coming into the country. You said that um, this is causing an increase in crime and that they are a burden on our um, social service system. Mm -hmm. What's the reality? Um, and so, so each one of those is very problematic, either completely false or just uh, based on false premises. Um, first of all, is there a flood of undocumented immigrants coming into the country? Well, if you look at the statistics, um, since 2007, there's been a continuing decline in the number of undocumented immigrants coming into the country, especially from the main source of people coming into the country without documents, which is Mexico. Um, Mexican migration hit net zero in 2008. That is, the same numbers were coming in and going out. And since then, it's skewed in the other direction. That is, more are leaving than are entering the United States. So the number of undocumented immigrants in the United States hit its peak of about 12 million um, in approximately 2007. And since then, it's been steadily declining. So it's now down to about 1 million. Um, so far from being a flood, what we're actually seeing is a, maybe a gradual tide going out, or, I mean, yeah. I hate to use these water metaphors anyway, oh, but, um, but the numbers have been decreasing, and I should, uh, make one caveat here, sure. that while the numbers of Mexicans has been decreasing, the number of Central Americans is still increasing. Now, we're talking about numbers that are much smaller than the number of Mexicans. So, so in terms of the impact on the overall number, um, the increase in the number of Central Americans uh, is, is more than over-counterbalanced by the numbers of Mexicans leaving. Um, hmm. 
So that's so that's why we've still seen an overall decline from 12 million to 11 million. However, the number of Central Americans is still increasing, and of course, there's reasons for both of these, um, which we can go into if you want. Uh, reasons why the number of Mexicans is going down, and reasons why the number of Central Americans is increasing. But we're certainly not seeing a flood of undocumented immigrants entering the country. Um, if uh, okay, second. Um, are undocumented immigrants responsible for any increases in crime in the country? Well, first of all, we're not experiencing an increase in crime in the country. Um, crime rates have been steadily declining during the in last decade, at least, um, as numbers of undocumented immigrants have been in or last two decades, let's say. While numbers of undocumented immigrants were increasing, crime has been decreasing. Um, and in fact, if you look at crime rates, both geographically, do places that have a significant number of undocumented immigrants have higher crime rates? No. Um, are undocumented immigrants' crime rates higher than the crime rates of citizens or green card holders or other statuses of people? No. In fact, undocumented immigrants commit far less far fewer crimes than do people of other immigration statuses. So um, there's, a, there's a kind of a um, temptation uh, uh, to say, oh, well, undocumented means illegal, that means mm -hmm. crimes. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about the kind of crimes that uh, actually affect people, um, it, you know, crimes against property, crimes against human life, uh, crimes against people, um, you do not see a correlation of uh, between the number of undocumented immigrants or the presence of undocumented immigrants and those kinds of crimes. Um, and finally, your third point here, again, I'm not attributing this oh, to you. I know, no, I know. you were just paraphrasing somebody else. Um, it's about clarifying. Our yeah. undocumented immigrants are a burden on our social service system. Oh, yes. Well, uh, first of all, undocumented immigrants are not eligible for barely any social services. So if you're looking at welfare, if you're looking at subsidized government-subsidized housing, if you're looking at um, food stamps or the, the SNAP, EBT system, mm -hmm. um, undocumented immigrants, if you're looking at um, subsidized health care uh, insurance, Undocumented immigrants are not eligible for any of those, so they are not drawing on those systems at all. Yeah, um, well. the, again, just to make it a little more complicated, most undocumented immigrants live in mixed-status families. Uh -huh. So one person may be undocumented, their spouse, their children, their parent may have documents. So it's quite possible and um, Oh, and I should also say that there are some very limited services. We don't even really think of them as services, but um, government-sponsored uh, things like public transportation, for example, is available to everybody regardless of your documentation status. So people who are undocumented may be, so, quote, using social services in terms of, like, they're going to get on a bus and pay the same as everybody else. Well, there is a state subsidy going into that bus system. Um, children who are undocumented are also eligible to attend public school. That is, public schools cannot discriminate against anybody based on documentation status. So again, we don't necessarily think of schools as uh, uh, social 
service system, as a social welfare system, but that is one thing that regardless of your documentation status, you are eligible to go to school through grade 12. Mm. Um, so the, the public, free public school system. Um, but so someone who's undocumented who lives in a mixed status family, sure. well, the person in their family who may be a citizen or a green card holder may actually be eligible for some social services, social welfare services. So so that's one thing. If, when you see people throwing around these statistics, it may be they may be also looking at people who are undocumented who live in a mixed-status family where a spouse who's a citizen sure. may be eligible for food stamps. Um, so obviously the person who's undocumented may be getting some benefit from that too. But certainly undocumented people are not using social welfare services because they're not eligible for them overall. Mm. Um, just one other piece. Oh, sure. Can I keep talking? Uh, yeah, please do. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes people need to stop for a station break. Um, one other thing that people have in mind when they say that uh, undocumented people are a burden on um, social services and on the state, on state coffers, is they're making the assumption that when somebody is undocumented, they're not paying into the system. They're not paying taxes. And that's yet another false assumption. That is, first of all, everybody who engages in any kind of economic transaction is paying taxes on it. If you rent a, a place to live or if you own a home, you're paying property taxes. If you drive a car, you're paying gasoline taxes, you're paying vehicle mm. taxes. Um, if you buy anything, you are paying, uh, paying sales taxes. So all economic transactions are taxed. So to break it down more, what people really have in mind when they say that people who are undocumented aren't paying taxes is that they're making a f what is a false assumption that undocumented people are not paying income taxes and payroll taxes. Um, and I say that this is also a false assumption because undocumented people have very high participation in the labor force. Their unemployment rate is very low, yes. so many of them are working, yes, and they're divided between those who work in the formal economy and those who work in the informal economy. Mm. Um, by the formal economy, I mean people who work for some kind of a company or a business where they get a paycheck every right. week. Now, those people who are undocumented who work in the formal economy, um, probably about half of them of the undocumented work in the formal economy, um, they are having payroll taxes deducted from their paycheck. Now, um, they do not have a valid Social Security number, but they're still having those taxes deducted. So the government is getting uh -huh. those taxes. Uh -huh. um, they just uh, mean that the person who's paying the taxes is never going to be eligible to receive, for right. example, Social Security, <laughs> because the number that they gave was a false sure. number, sure. can't be identified with their name. They're never going to be able to cash in. But the taxes are absolutely being withheld if they're working in the formal economy. Now, for those who are working in the informal economy, they're not having taxes withheld. They're being paid under the table, right. um, probably in cash. So they're not having payroll taxes withheld. However, many of them are still paying taxes by requesting from the IRS what's called a taxpayer identification number, an ITIN number, mm -hmm. um, and they file tax returns every year. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they do this is that 
because they're trying to establish their residency in the country. They're hoping that someday there will be an immigration reform and that by showing that they've been paying taxes, they're going to be able to take advantage of this new hopeful, what they're hoping for in terms of an immigration reform. What, you mean they're playing by the rules? <laughs> yes. Um, for most undocumented people, when they, whenever they can, they play by the rules yes. because what they most are hoping for is that at some point the law is going to allow them to regularize their status. Absolutely amazing. Um, the other thing I should just mention about the people who are working in the informal economy sure. is that it might seem like an advantage that you don't have your payroll taxes deducted, but... It also means that you're not protected by any kind of labor protections. It means that you most likely are not going to be getting minimum wage. Mm. It means that if you're injured on the job, you're not eligible for workers' compensation. It means if you lose your job, you're not eligible for unemployment insurance. Um, it means that if the conditions on your job are unsafe, there's no one to complain to, um, it means that basically you don't have any of the rights that most workers in this country enjoy. So it's not like people who work in the informal economy are getting a really good deal. They're getting a really terrible deal. Mm. Yeah, it's funny how, not funny, it's unfortunate and uh, surprising a little bit how different reality is versus the image. And I, I have to think that my goodness, racism may possibly be a factor in the picture that we're getting. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, serving as your host. We're talking with Avi Chomsky, professor of history and coordinator of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Salem State University. We're talking about realities behind the impression of a new immigrant crackdown. I mean, it's ugly out there, and it does seem like the, the government is... Uh, is making out better, actually, you know, by the, I mean, people come here to work. They come here to work. They want to be citizens. They're dedicated to, uh, to America and to being a, a part of their community. And, uh, but it didn't, it didn't start with Trump. Trump is certainly making the most of it. And, and obviously the, uh, you know, his appeals to racism served him well. Let's face it. It's, it's, it's horrible. And I, I, I want to look at Obama and President Clinton, Bill Clinton. But before we get to President Bill Clinton's effect on immigration and immigrant rights, which I do want to talk about, let's look at the policies and relevant statements of the 2016 Democratic nominee, Hillary Clinton. In 2014, Hillary Clinton believed that undocumented children from Central America, from violence there, should be, quote, sent back. Unquote. In 2016, Hillary Clinton bragged about voting as a senator to spend money to build a barrier. In 2008, as candidate for president, uh, Clinton said she would not allow immig illegal immigrants to be covered under her universal uh, health care plan. How was she seen in the immigrant community? I understand there's millions of people and it's probably tough to break down to, quote, the immigrant community. But, but how was she seen? Uh, there was she a champion for immigrants, or suspicious, or, or, or what's your sense of it, uh, Abby? Um, I do not think that immigrants in general see Hillary Clinton as a friend to immigrants in any way. Um, I think Obama has a more complicated legacy. I'm sure we'll get to that. I won't go into it right now. Sure um, but uh, indeed, you pointed out some very important statements made by Hillary Clinton 
that show clearly that she is not a friend to immigrants. And I think, um, rightly or wrongly, I think rightly, uh, people associate Hillary Clinton with her husband, Bill Clinton. And mm-hmm. I say rightly because, um, you know, they are a political couple who clearly, um, you know, I don't hold every person responsible for the politics of their spouse, but in the case of this particular couple, they have acted on the scene as a unit, yes. as a political unit. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, I don't think it's an, an error to associate her with the policies implemented by her husband, Bill Clinton. Um, and Bill Clinton is responsible for the 1996 Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigration Responsibility Act, as well as the 1996 Welfare Reform Act, yes. both of which were extremely draconian anti-immigrant and anti-people of color in general um, pieces of legislation that really stripped immigrants of very important rights that they had previously had in the United States and and set the groundwork for what we're hearing today from President Trump, which you mentioned at the very beginning about the criminalization of immigrants, um, putting down on paper this automatic assumption that immigrants are criminals and need to be punished. Mm. Um, that very, very much dates to not just um, what Hillary Clinton has said, but also to what her husband did as as president. Yeah, and and you know Clinton has one image, Bill Clinton, but the reality, as you say, the 1996 Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Res- Immigration Responsibility Act, uh, how and, and also the the welfare reform, which was again very controversial and and kind of draconian for sure. How did the immigration Act of 96 affect immigrants who may have committed minor crimes, so-called immigration crimes? Yeah, so one of the things that uh, IIRIRA put into place in terms of criminalization is that it made a whole slew of so-called crimes grounds for deportation that previously had not been grounds for deportation. So here we're talking about legal immigrants, people who um, are here on green cards, um, who who, who may in the past have either committed some kind of a crime or even pleaded guilty to some kind of a violation on the advice of their lawyers, mm-hmm. um, and I should mention that uh, most ca- most cases are, in fact, don't go to trial, but um, right. are, are resolved Plea through plea bargaining. Sure. And frequently, yeah. if it's a minor charge, um, a lawyer will advise a client to plead guilty and get a suspended sentence or a small fine or probation rather than go through a trial in which they might... Um, uh, receive a harsher sentence. So through the plea bargain, they get they get guaranteed a very light sentence. So people are encouraged to plead guilty even when they have not committed the violation that they're being tried for, that they're being accused of. Yeah. Um, sometimes these are very minor violations. Um, uh, sometimes they're uh, committed when the person is a youth or adolescent. Mm. Um, It may be a minor drug violation. It may be a minor traffic violation or even a not-so-minor traffic violation. It may be shoplifting. Um, That is, crimes that 
first of all, the person may not even have committed it, but they may mm-hmm. have been um, encouraged to plead guilty. Right. Um, or secondly, they might have been crimes like possession of a small amount of marijuana that that probably 75% of the youth in the United States could be uh, accused of, um, could be convicted of, yep. but... But uh, but when you have it on your record, it turns into this criminal charge that Clinton then, in 1996, turned these into grounds for deportation. Even if they never went to trial, even with, if the person was never convicted, even if they long ago paid the small fine or um, the sentence was suspended, they can still retroactively be turned into grounds for deportation after 1996. That is really kind of shocking. It's, it's so different from somehow the image we get. And, you know, there's, that's one thing we do on this show, Keeping Democracy Alive, is try to look beyond the, the image and the myth and look at actual history. You know, we could learn from real history. We never seem to. But one thing else that Bill Clinton is known for, uh, not in a positive light, is his controversial welfare reform, which, as I understood it, which wasn't very much, was that it kicked people off welfare without having jobs for them to go to. How did that specifically affect immigrants, uh, and especially people of color? Um, well, I, too, I'm not don't want to go into everything about the welfare reform, because we could spend the whole rest of the hour yeah. talking about that. Um, but specifically specifically regarding immigrants, is that, again, looking at legal permanent residents, looking at um, that basically he cut off the possibility for immigrants, even legal permanent residents, um, to gain access to social services. So, so he's basically turning people, um, making it much, much more difficult for people to survive, even people who supposedly played by the rules and um, and followed all the rules and uh-huh. and went through the whole process and uh, and and obtained their legal permanent residence so he's it, it, I think it goes in line with his criminalizing of people uh, people of color and his sort of um, pushing uh, forth this this notion of that people of color are just trying to live off the system somehow. Um, and uh, which I think is part of the, the criminalization. And of course, Clinton isn't the first to do this. We certainly saw Ronald Reagan doing it um, back in the 1980s with his idea of welfare clean, queens, uh-huh. that people of color are abusing the system, that they're, that they're living high off of the system. And I think that was the, the impetus behind the, the the sort of the, the psychology behind the mm. welfare reform, sure. um, but specifically with respect to so putting into place work requirements for welfare, making it much more difficult and making it completely impossible for a large number of immigrants to access services. Yeah, and, and you know, the reality is in terms of actual dollars uh, that cost the government and cost taxpayers, <laughs> government subsidies of big businesses You can't compare. I mean, it's not even pennies to the dollar. It's just, you know, the real money is being, you know, wasted. I would uh, suggest, uh, you know, at much, much bigger numbers, the the so-called welfare queens, you know, that's an ugly term. And it's, I mean, obviously, obviously racist. There's, There's quite a bit of that, which is interesting given that it's Bill Clinton who, 
you know, was was seen as as, as a friend of uh, people of color for the most part. And he also, you know, there's this long tradition of politicians of both parties. They want to be seen as tough on crime. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's very scary. Oh, my goodness, I can't look soft on crime. Under this, there grew what you call a, quote, separate and unequal immigration enforcement system in which due process was eliminated, end of quote. That's tough stuff. Tell us about that, please. Ending due process? Wow. So, yes, the um, the immigration legal system is a completely separate system of law of courts and just and of justice. Really? That is, if you are arrested under the um, the criminal justice system, you're arrested by the police. You have certain rights. Um, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to representation. You have a right to know what the charges against you are. You have a right to a trial. Um, all of these rights that are guaranteed to us by the Constitution under the criminal justice system. But the immigration system is developed on a completely different logic. And um, I can't blame all of this on established way before Bill Clinton, so I can blame him for a lot of things, but not completely for this. Um, that is, immigration law is a completely separate body of law. Under the immigration legal system, you basically have no rights. Um, wow. Uh, you don't have a right to legal representation. You don't have a right to a trial. Uh, you uh, you basically um, are considered a non-person under these rights because if you are accused of being in the country illegally, and this is just for immigration violations, that is, if an immigrant is accused of a crime and they're brought into the criminal justice system, they they have those rights. Um, but uh, under the immigration uh-huh. system, and the immigration system can enforce what, for many people, is the most draconian punishment of all, which is banishment, which is yeah. deportation, um, with no representation, with no trial. Uh, uh, you can be um, given the harshest punishment, um, whereas somebody who's accused of even a very minor violation, civil or criminal, um, they say, drug possession or sure. shoplifting. Yeah. Um, you get due process. You get due process. Under the immigration system, there is no such thing as due process. And it's almost, and you, you don't have the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. There's no need to be proven guilty. Um, your very existence is sort of automatic proof of your guilt. Before we leave Bill Clinton, I just wanted to mention one other very important part of Bill Clinton's legacy, which is the wall. Operation Gatekeeper, the idea, and this goes along with what you were just saying in terms of being so-called tough on crime, um, the idea that we're going to protect the country by building a wall, protect the country from these, uh, by implication, supposedly dangerous um, people who are crossing the border. Uh, and, And Clinton's project of building a border wall, of so-called securing the border. And I mean, just listen to all the terminology that's used here. It just creates this, this sense of, uh, of criminality, of danger. Um, and this was even before 9-11. Of course, after 9-11, it gets much worse. Uh, crossing the border is a completely victimless violation. Building the border wall, on the contrary, created a lot of victims. That it, and on so many levels, I could talk about this for the whole rest of the show too, but I'll try to keep it short. Um, building the border wall 
cutting off the relatively safe, relatively urban areas where people had traditionally been crossing the border for over a hundred years, building the wall and trying to break this system, what it did is it pushed people into uh, physically dangerous and socially dangerous areas. It pushed people into the desert. It pushed people into very harsh terrain. And it caused many, many more people to risk and to lose their lives trying to cross the border. Hmm. It didn't stop people from crossing the border, but it did make border crossing much more dangerous. And here comes the social part. It also made it much more expensive. That is, the smuggling business, which used to be a very small-scale, relatively low-cost kind of retail business of small business people, Mm. um, turned into a huge gang and government-dominated and drug-dominated syndicate. Mm. So crossing the border became much more expensive, much more dangerous, and the border really turned into this lawless land under the control of drug traffickers and gangs, this is all the result of Clinton's border policy. Um, it's no, it wasn't the cause, it's the result. Who knew? And the more we try to, quote, secure the border, um, the other really ironic thing about uh, the policy that is supposedly, quote, securing the border was going, the purpose of it was to um, reduce the number of undocumented people in the United States. Right. But but paradoxically, instead of that, it increased the number of undocumented people in the United States. That is, the numbers skyrocketed in the 1990s under Bill Clinton's watch, in many ways as a result of his policies. Um, so why did building the border wall increase the number of undocumented immigrants in the United States? Well, because it turned what had previously been a circular seasonal migration of people to and from the United States into a one-way street. Once it got so dangerous, so difficult, so expensive to cross the border, once people were in the country, they started to stay, and they started to bring their families. So... So the numbers just start going up and up because people are still coming, but people stop leaving. (laughs) I wonder Um, if it's one other piece of Clinton's policy that I think also has to be looked at in this context is NAFTA and the impact of NAFTA on Mexico, especially on small corn farmers in southern Mexico, Um, because. As I said, Mexicans have been crossing the border to work in U.S. railroad building, in U.S. agriculture, in U.S. mining in the southwest and western United States since the 1850s, since the United States took this territory from Mexico. Mexicans have been recruited to work there consistently over these past 150 years. And those Mexicans were primarily from northern and central Mexico. Okay. There was no tradition of migration. Um, There's no culture of migration among the indigenous of southern Mexico. They're primarily Spanish-speaking mestizos from northern and central Mexico who had this long history established by mostly by the U.S. government and U.S. corporations, U.S. employers. Um, But after NAFTA, NAFTA has the most dramatic effects on small corn farmers in southern Mexico 
who are primarily indigenous and whose way of life and livelihood had been protected by the Mexican government until the 1990s. Um, in order to, uh, as part of the build-up to NAFTA, Mexico is forced to revise its constitution, and it's forced to remove some of the protections, the economic protections, um, to these small farmers, both in terms of support for the prices of corn and in terms of subsidies for their production to allow these people to stay on their farms and to continue their traditional lifestyles. Um, NAFTA undoes all of that, and Mexico is flooded with cheap mass-produced, heavily government-subsidized, I should add, U.S. corn from U.S. agribusiness. And so this whole new group of people is displaced from their villages, from their traditions, from their livelihoods, and becomes the migrant stream of the 1990s um, and early 2000s of Mexicans into the United States. So, So this is also a direct result of Clinton policies. Absolutely amazing. It's almost like we couldn't have designed a uh, anything that could have exacerbated the uh, flow of immigrants more than we've done. Um, but let me also say that the U.S. business class utterly depends on undocumented oh, migrant very workers. Much so, yes. No president is actually going to implement policies that are going to eliminate undocumented migrant workers from the economy Excellent because point. the economy would collapse. So in some ways, it's not so surprising and paradoxical. I think to a large extent, our immigration policies um, have been theater. That ah, is, yes. they have been aimed at, as you suggested, promoting this tough-on-crime, um, at whipping up anti-immigrant sets, sentiment at whipping up racism, they have not been aimed at actually stopping people from crossing the border. It's so true. I mean, I have, believe it or not, Republican business friends who say, yeah, we need these people. It's, you know, quite well known that, that immigrants will do jobs for, frankly, less money and jobs that nobody else wants. And the economy is absolutely depending on it. But that's Fascinating about the uh, agribusiness corn flooding into Mexico as a result of NAFTA. Oh, Mm -hmm, my goodness. mm -hmm. Just amazing. Well, then we have Obama, and I'm sure we could talk about Clinton more and more and more, but, uh, (laughs) you know, people need to know this anti-immigrant stuff didn't start with the orange one. You know, it's been there for a long time. I I remember... uh, uh, during the Obama years, I get the sense that his image was one thing, but in reality, he had implemented a policy of increased deportations. His legacy on immigration enforcement it looks kind of contradictory. As you write, he claimed to be a humanitarian who sought to deport only felons, not families. That was his phrase, felons, not families, while granting relief from deportation to hundreds of thousands of undocumented immigrants. At the same time, he was dubbed the deporter-in-chief. Can you explain that? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I would love to explain that. Um, Again, I think there's the theater, there's the image, and there's the reality. Um, And I think Obama was playing to various audiences um, in what looks like a contradictory policy, but um, we can make sense out of it if we... uh, if we begin from the premise that there, that Obama really has three, it's a three-part policy. Okay. Um, 
on one hand, there's in what we call interior enforcement. And this is what ICE does, mm-hmm. Immigration Customs Enforcement. Um, uh, with respect to interior policy, that is, people who are already in the interior of the United States, this is where Obama did his humanitarian theater, we can say, um, where he talked about young people who were brought here through right. no fault of their own, where right. he talked about felons, not families, um, where he tried to rhetorically create a group of innocent immigrants um, who were deserving of humanitarian treatment. And I should say that I think in large part, um, this was a move to respond to huge mobilization on the part of immigrant youth that had obtained a lot of sympathy in the general population. Um, uh, The dreamer generation, young people who grew up in the United States who may not have even known they were undocumented Mm. until they reached the age of 16 and all their friends start getting driver's licenses and they learn that they can't, um, who their friends start getting jobs, start applying to colleges, and they find out that they can't. Um, This generation has mobilized and really made a big impact on Congress, on on the public in general. And I think in a way, President Obama was trying to undercut that um, by by his division of immigrants into... um, well, this phrase that yeah. he loved to use, felons, not right. families. Right. Um, uh, youth who were brought here through no fault of their own. And notice that both of these phrases and Obama's approach to interior enforcement in general really relied on this notion of innocence and guilt. So he was constructing some undocumented people as innocent, but at the same time, others as guilty. That is, implicitly, by calling some innocent, he was calling the rest guilty. Now, note that the youth organizers did not use this language at all. They did not try to proclaim their innocence um, and say that, well, yes, you should be arresting all the other immigrants, but not (laughs) us. That was not their goal. But that's how he manipulated um, the sympathy that these young people had garnered in the public sphere, as well as in Congress. Um, So... So in interior enforcement, he did indeed protect significant numbers of undocumented people from um, from automatic deportation and from ICE enforcement. And his signature program there was DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which he, he proposed as an executive order in 2012 and which was supported by the courts. So it's still in place. Um, what DACA did was to give a temporary legal status to people who could prove um, not only that they were brought to the United States as children through no fault of their own, implying that it was somebody's fault, um, and who were either in school, serving in the military, um, uh, going to college, working, uh, who had no criminal records, um, and who could prove their innocence. And this applied to about 750,000 young people who were able to obtain DACA. So this was wonderful for them, but it was only temporary. It was two years, and then it was renewable. Um, And nobody knows what President Trump is going to do with DACA. Um, He has said contradictory things, as he has about many topics. So far, he hasn't moved to eliminate DACA, but it's a very precarious status at the same time that it is a huge relief from, from the 
daily fear of deportation. So DACA, um, again, is, say, could you say what DACA is again? Oh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival. Right, right. That's important to know about. I, I thought it was interesting, too, that Obama, you know, he, he looked uh, like he was, you know, trying to be a nice guy on this stuff, uh, trying to be both things at once, oddly enough. Imagine a politician trying to please both sides. <laughs> I know, hard to believe. But he gave Immigration and Customs Enforcement ICE agents prosecutorial discretion. What, what, tell us about that. What did that do? Okay, so prosecutorial discretion went right along with DACA, um, that is, in trying to separate what he called felons from families. He said, um, logistically, we're not going to be able to deport 11 million people from the United States, so we should focus on the criminals. Um, So there's this language of criminalization, and if you look at who was actually prioritized as a criminal... Um, again, as we have, were talking about earlier, this is a very broad definition of criminal. Um, only a yes. tiny percentage were people of people who were deported under this uh, prosecutorial discretion. Only a tiny percentage had actually been convicted of something that most sure. of us would call a crime. Um, in the vast majority of cases, it was an immigration violation or a traffic violation. Those were the crimes that people had committed that um, made them priorities under prosecutorial discretion. Um, But so I said there are three pieces to Obama's policy. So prosecutorial discretion also goes with interior enforcement. And I've tried to emphasize the the mixed nature of this. It protects some people, but at the expense of criminalizing others. When we come to border enforcement, this is the second geographical area, everybody is criminalized. And if you look closely Mm. at when Obama talks about his priority enforcement categories for prosecutorial discretion, um, it's always criminals and recent border crossers who should be prioritized. Right. That was curious. So basically everyone in the border region is considered a recent border crosser and is a priority for deportation. Right. So where Obama became the deporter-in-chief was really in his border policies. Um, And I should say that uh, the terminology is very important here, because when people are deported from the border region, there's two different ways it can be done. Under Clinton, under Bush, under previous presidencies, it was done primarily through something called voluntary departure. Um, This means that people are returned to Mexico, taken back across the border, but without any criminal processing, without any criminal record. And they they come up in a column called returns when you look at the statistics. What Obama did that was new was he criminalized all of these people. Mm. He processed them legally and returned them to Mexico with a criminal record in something that is legally called a removal, a criminal removal. Hmm. So if this is the way in which he basically criminalized everyone at the border. How many people were sent back to Mexico was pretty much the same under Bush, Obama, and Clinton, about a million a year. 
but under Obama, far more of them were moved into this column of removals, of being criminalized, of turning into criminal removals. And that means that the person has a permanent criminal record in the United States, even though their only crime is something that is not really a crime, it's crossing the border, but criminalized by Clinton and then um, super-criminalized by Obama. Finally, the third piece, which is the least known piece of uh, President Obama's uh, immigration enforcement legacy, is the Mexico Southern Border Program. That is, um, for Central Americans who were crossing the border, and if you remembered, um, during the middle years of the Obama presidency, there were large numbers, middle and later years of Obama's presidency, large numbers of unaccompanied minors, of families with young children fleeing the violence in Central America, crossing the border. Um, And again, quite a bit of public outcry for humane treatment for these people, and steps taken by by Obama to... um, to implement humane treatment for, especially for unaccompanied minors and um, families with small children, uh, picked up after crossing the border. Um, however, at the same time, the quieter part of his policy was to force Mexico to militarize its southern border to try to prevent these Central Americans from getting anywhere near the border with the United States and being forced to provide humane treatment for them. So far more Central Americans were arrested and deported before even getting near the U.S. border and being able to take advantage of these so-called humanitarian policies that Obama had put into place. So so definitely Obama liked to point to his humane policies, Mm -hmm. but they were done in the context of criminalization, increasing criminalization, increasing deportation, and um, extremely inhumane treatment that, uh, in collaboration with Mexico, he worked towards implementing towards Central American migrants. Oh, geez. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, which is quite a heavy lift. I hope you, listener, are doing what you can to keep democracy alive as well. Our guest today is Avi Chomsky, Professor of History and Coordinator of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean Studies at Salem State University, Massachusetts. And we're talking about the roots of uh, Trump's anti-immigrant bluster, how it's really gone on. It it, it didn't start with Trump, (laughs) not by a long shot. It, 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 we're talking about Clinton, uh, both Clintons, actually, and, and Obama. My question to you, Avi, is where does this come from? You know, is this something that comes from uh, the people that the presidents, Clinton and Obama, are not, are, are they taking the lead on this on their own? Or is there some kind of uh, popular sentiment <laughs> against immigrants? I, you know, I, what's your sense of where does this come from? You know, what, what's the uh, context of it? Okay, do I really have only five minutes left to tell you all? <laughs> <laughs> um, you got about okay. six, seven. So I would say um, racism is absolutely, definitely at the root of it, and yeah. that racism has played a very important economic role in this country since its founding. Yes. Um, this is a white settler colonial country built on the deportation of Native Americans Mm -hmm. out of their lands, Mm -hmm. and the importation of African laborers to do the hardest and dirtiest and most exploited work 
yes. um, necessary to build this country of white supremacy. Trump fed on it very well. I mean, his presidency, uh, you know, I think was based a lot on the criminalization of people in color, of color and immigrants. It, it helped him uh, get elected. And yet, you know, the reality seems to me that, you know, I, I've seen recent immigrants dedicated to their new home. They're, they understand the Constitution more than most people who were born here, I think, exceptionally hard workers. Uh, you know, it, it reminds me of the uh, racist nativism of the know-nothings in the mid-19th century uh, and, and, and racism here. Uh, let me ask you, we don't have a lot of time left, about uh, sanctuary cities. What are they? And Because I think most Americans are not as, as racist and nasty toward immigrants and people of color. I hope they're not. I have to believe that, uh, trying to be optimistic here. But what about these sanctuary cities, and what are they, and what basis have courts had to protect them from Trump? Um, so recalling that immigration law is a completely separate body of law, and it has its own police force to enforce it, ICE, um, uh, state, municipal, and county um, police are not obligated to right. and are not even qualified or trained to enforce U.S. immigration law, and it's never been their job. Um, it was under the Bush and Obama administrations that they tried to set up programs to obligate local police institutions um, to actually enforce federal immigration law, and there was a lot of pushback from these institutions. That is their job is to police their communities. They're not trained in immigration law, and nobody's paying them to enforce federal immigration law no either. Yeah. Um, and they want to be able to maintain relationships with the communities that they police. They don't want people to be terrified to interact with them because they're afraid of being deported. Yeah, and they report real um, crimes. Sanctuary yeah. cities basically protect the right of um, local police forces not to be coerced into enforcing federal immigration law. And um, so far, the courts have stood up for, for these rights. Yeah, it's interesting. They, um, so President Trump threatened that federal funds were going to be withheld from sanctuary cities. And so far, the courts have said no, um, that, uh, that they can't, and that, in fact, um, it may well be unconstitutional for local forces to take on the enforcement of federal immigration law. Oh, that's an interesting point. Well, I'm sure, I mean, local police have their local stuff and state police, and then there's the federal laws. I find it interesting that, I mean, in, in so many ways, the states can be a significant player in so many issues. The Texas House of Representatives recently passed a bill, SB4, uh, an anti-immigrant bill that allows police, including campus police, to conduct in, intrusive uh, broad and discriminatory searches. Uh, it requires individuals to comply with uh, ICE detainer requests, uh, even threatens to criminally charge public officials who refuse to comply with, uh, you know, doing the work of ICE. What, how much of this battle can be done at the state level, especially on the, you know, what used to be Mexico, uh, or is, is it still primarily uh, in, the, in the federal, uh, uh, you know, jurisdiction? Well, these are arguments over enforcement. Um, the law can only be changed by Congress. And um, the, the executive can, um, can create executive orders that 
uh, that can do certain things, as President Obama did with DACA. Um, but when President Obama tried to um, do DACA version B, which was DAPA, Deferred Action for Parents of Americans, which would have actually um, encompassed far more undocumented people than DACA did, that was stopped by the courts. That is, that was seen as an infringement on congressional authority for immigration law. So it's really only Congress that can change the law. But in terms of the nitty-gritty of enforcement, there is a lot that localities, counties, municipalities, and uh, states can do. Uh-huh. Well, we've come up to the end, unfortunately. There's a lot more to talk about. And where can—I I know listeners will be interested in following up— what would you suggest people look at on the web, the uh, the internets, as as President Bush used to call them? What can people do? How, what are the, like the best organizations that people can uh, perhaps uh, see as advocacy groups that are effective? Um, well, there are lots of groups I'm out there. Sure. There's the National Network for Immigrant and Refugee Rights, which. Um, you know, it's kind of an umbrella for many immigrant rights organizations. Um, and there's new organizations popping up all the time. So I almost hesitate yeah. to to mention, you know, I think the most important thing is to look at what's happening in your local area. Mm-hmm. What are the local organizations and what are they working on? Because um, it sometimes varies a lot. In Massachusetts, for example, right now we're working on the Trust Act, um, something to do like what California has done at the state level in terms of making it clear the opposite of what you were just saying happened in Texas, mm. Um, mm-hmm. making it clear that the state does not allow local law enforcement agencies to enforce federal immigration law. So the subject um, we all can so, do. But this varies state by state, depending on where you're at as mm-hmm. to what the specific campaigns are right now. But we can all keep raising our voices and keep uh, looking into what the realities behind the image are and uh, keep our voices there for justice, because I think most people do care about justice and fairness and anti-racism. Avi Chomsky, thank you so much. Shed a lot of light into this uh, very complex issue. Thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you. Dolly Parton doing a Woody Guthrie song. Deportee. The crops are all in and the peaches are rotten Oranges are piled in their creosote dumps You're flying them back to the Mexican border To pay all their money to wait back again Goodbye to my Chase us like outlaws, 
like wrestlers, like bees. Goodbye to my one, goodbye, Rosalita. Adios, mis amigos, Jesus and Maria.